Let's take our Bibles and read from Matthew chapter 15 this evening. Now we'll read the last verses of Matthew 15, be our text, verses 32 through 39. There's a parallel passage in Mark 8 in the first 10 verses. We'll not read that tonight, but we'll be alluding to that from time to time. Matthew 15, 32, 39. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to to fill such a great multitude? Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were four thousand men besides women and children, and he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Thus far we read... This account of the second feeding of a multitude by Jesus recorded in Holy Writ. The first feeding in chapter 14 of Matthew, John 6 and other places, the feeding of the 5,000. This feeding is of the feeding of 4,000 besides, men, uh, besides women and children. Some people think that these miracles are one that the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 are really one miracle. But Jesus uh, puts that argument to rest when he speaks of the two events of the feeding of the 5,000 and of the 4,000 as distinct events. Note chapter 16 of Matthew. He says to the disciples, Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up. And so he speaks of two different events, two different miracles, both of which were for one purpose. And the one purpose is to show that Jesus is the Savior. And he's the good shepherd of the sheep on the behalf of God, Jehovah God, who provides a table in the wilderness. This sermon, therefore, to This morning's sermon on God providing for the sheep on the table, or the table land, as they would know his presence even in the midst of enemies. We need to know this, beloved, that Jesus here is revealing himself as Messiah. We need to know this in a very special time in which we live. In those days, the leaders were promoting a false Messiah, the Jews were, false concept of Messiah, Jesus will, in the very next chapter, warn the disciples off of the doctrine of the scribes and the Pharisees. They had an earthly notion of Messiah, and they need to learn of Jesus and who he is, and that's why he asked them at that time, who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? Who do you think Messiah is? 
And so we in our day, beloved, live in a time when there are many who are promoting false Christs. This is exactly in fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus in Matthew 24. In some of the verses in that chapter, that eschatological discourse, Jesus reminds us that the end of time will be when people start saying, here's Christ, or there's Christ, and everywhere a Christ Christ. They're being thinking that there's a kind of salvation in a kind of one who's called a savior, even a Christ. We think of that in our day when, For example, the government is promoting a kind of salvation, either from the destruction of the world and global warming, or from economic unrest, or from inequality, or from AIDS, or from COVID, or whatever. The government has stepped to the plate, even stepped up into the role of Messiah in providing everyone just what the government thinks it needs. There is a cost. There is a cost even of compromise should we go after the false Christs. We need the revelation of the word of God about the identity of the truth as it is in Jesus, the doctrine of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the work, therefore, of the church on his behalf. Tonight we would learn of Messiah, who is Messiah indeed, the bread of the world. There is a distinction, we should know, between the two feedings, 5,000 and the 4,000. The feeding of the 5,000 was largely among the Jews. The feeding of the 4,000, from what we can surmise where Jesus is located, is largely among the Gentiles on the other side of the Jordan River, the region known as the Decapolis. So here you have Messiah revealed among two peoples, amounting to the entire world of Jew and Gentile. We need to learn this for ourselves to learn how to be church. We go on behalf of Jesus to all the world. There's also a striking notice here, the very onset of the, of the uh, miracle of the feeding of the 4,000, that Jesus has compassion. As we read here, I have compassion on the multitude, he says to the disciples, verse 32. It's exactly because of this compassion on the multitude that Jesus does this miracle. And so we need to remember what it is to have the compassion of Christ, and that leads to the third point of my would mean that there's a... It seems that this is a major part of the miracle at this time. The disciples were not, they did not understand Jesus even to this point. Even though he had fed 5,000, they're wondering how he could feed 4,000 with hardly anything in this wilderness. And so we learn something of the possibilities and realities of Jesus and of our ministry as his church. Jesus shows himself Messiah, bread of the world. He does this in a great miracle. Children, it is indeed a miracle. Jesus is showing that he is God, God the Son incarnate. Because look what he does. As in the first of the feeding of the multitude of 5,000, here, out of a mere seven loaves and 
a few little fish. After he had given thanks to God, he himself uh, distributed to the disciples and the disciples to the multitude so that all the 4,000 plus women and children, maybe 8,000 altogether, were filled. Not one of them was lacking. They all ate and they were filled. Besides that, there were seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now, beloved, you have here a miracle of creation. This is not magic. This is not Jesus secretly bringing in more bread that nobody could see. This is bringing to being into being something that was not. That's a definition of creation. You have here Jesus himself being the agent of that creation, showing that he himself is the creator, the word of the creator, the word of the Father, who with the Holy Spirit created all things out of nothing in the very beginning of time. So Jesus here is showing that he's God with the people and also Messiah, exactly because he is the one who's taken the form of a man and on the earth already created earth, he would do such miracles to show forth the praises of God in the saving of a people from this sinful world, this world that has become sinful. Reminded of the fact that when Jesus first came to the earth, when he first began his public ministry, when he went to the synagogue in Nazareth, he took up the book of Isaiah and chapter 61, and he read this as something that was now being fulfilled in him. Luke chapter 4, 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's when he closes the book, sits back down, the eyes of all are upon him in the synagogue, and he says, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What Jesus is saying by that is that his coming is the coming of the Savior, the one prophesied in the book of Isaiah in chapter 61 and in all of the scripture. He's the Messiah. He's God with the people to save them and to show this salvation that he brings by healing those who are sick, by raising the dead, by declaring liberty to the captives, and add to that list of things that he does to show his messiahship, the feeding of the 4,000, the 5,000, and then the 4,000. Jesus is Messiah, who does not miracles willy-nilly and just to show off the miracles and his power, but it would show off the love of God in saving a people and giving them a much higher life than the things of this bread. In fact, he shows himself as Jesus, as the one who is the bread from heaven. We read in John 6 that this was the sermon that Jesus preached after he fed the 5,000. Remember that in John 6? He preached himself as the bread from heaven. And he explained that eating and drinking himself was to have life and never to die. And at this, the Jews who didn't want this kind of Messiah, they all rebelled against him and 
his disciples left. But Jesus then is teaching of a higher life through teaching of his, through giving of this kind of bread, this newly created bread to fill the people up in their bodies. Also, however, he would expand their souls. This is what, in fact, is happening to this multitude of the Gentiles who are being taken into the kingdom. Their souls are being expanded. I want to prove that for you. Earlier, and just before this meeting of uh, this uh, feeding of the 4,000 by Jesus, Jesus had been working other miracles on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Read of this in verse 29. We spoke of this several weeks ago. Great multitudes came to him then, having with them the lame, the blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. Now here's what those Gentiles did, at least those who were largely Gentiles. They glorified the God of Israel. You see, they were not of the people of Israel, but they glorified the God of Israel, in whose name Jesus had come to them. They glorified the Jews' God, Jehovah. Jehovah, you see, at this time, was taking in the Gentiles into his, his bosom, gathering the lambs from another fold, even the Gentile fold, in and to be with the Jews who were already in his fold according to the ordination of God. Jesus was showing that he came to fulfill the promise of Abraham that in him all nations would be blessed. This is Jesus, and this is the Messiah, the fulfiller of the promises. And, beloved, this is uh, further proven by the fact that this multitude... They, in Mark, we read, saw that Jesus did all things well. We preached about that, I think, the last time. Messiah does all things well. And what they were doing there is glorifying God. They were doing that, the God of Israel, and understanding that this glory of God was seen now in Messiah, who did all things well. And that was an understatement. In fact, he did all things perfectly, and they were marveling at him, which, of course, is something we ought to remember. If people are really going to be glorifiers of God, they have to think well of Jesus, whom God has sent. In fact, they have to think so well of him that they think he is indeed the Savior of the world. He himself doesn't need salvation. He does all things well, even so well that he pleases God in all things. And he comes as a savior of other people. And he can do that because he's perfect and he fulfills the law of God. And he'll go to the cross and he'll be that Messiah in our place whom we need. So Jesus is glorified by this people whose whose bodies not only are, are about to be filled, but whose soul is expanded and they know something, the salvation of God. Besides that, when at this time Jesus is moved to compassion, he reminds the disciples that this multitude on the other side of the Jordan has now continued with him three days and they have nothing to eat, verse 32. 
They have, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. Now, it could be that they had nothing to eat for three days or that gradually whatever food they, they, they brought with them, they ran out of it. and Now they don't have food enough for the journey unless they faint. And remember, there's women and children there. Jesus has compassion on them and this occasions the miracle. And now that is remarkable. And for those who think that 45 minutes is too long to stay by Jesus, I would commend to your attention that they stayed for three days by Jesus. And they were continuing by him. That word there is used in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 23, to that continued steadfastly or was called to continue steadfastly against opposition that would prevent them in the faith. So there's this idea of things that are opposed to their staying by Jesus, which are overcome so that they do stay by, they continue by Jesus in spite of the difficulties, the least of which now would be the difficulties of their hunger pangs. So there they are, far from Myers and far from D&W and, uh, and Aldi's and so on, in the wilderness, but they have Jesus, and Jesus will feed them, and Jesus blesses them, and they don't mind being there as long as they have Jesus in the wilderness. I wonder sometimes, beloved, if we have such faith, if we, if, if we have such perseverance, this is something that has to be worked in us increasingly, and increasingly as the days come, when it will cost something to be a Christian, when there will be all kinds of temptations to us not to be Christian and decidedly and consistently Christian because the government or some other power, religious and political, is going to threaten our pocketbooks it's going to threaten our economics and our savings account and our retirement and the very bread in, in our cupboards and the, the milk in our refrigerators. The Antichrist is known, after all, as one who has this mark and which to wear is to show allegiance to him and which is to be able to buy and sell. And if we do not bear the mark of the Antichrist, 666, if we do not show ourselves as ungodly as he is, there will be a price to pay, even our very lives. Think of this. Think of this feeding of the 5,000 and the choices that these people made to be with Jesus no matter where, even if it was in the wilderness. And they would be there steadfast by him. So they did this. And we read in, in another place, and it's, it was Mark 8 as, as well, and I'm referring again to that parallel passage, that these people were told by Jesus, shh, don't tell of me. And what did they do as a result of that? And you wonder why Jesus said that, don't tell of me. And we, we surmise, he didn't want his time to be uh, fulfilled, that he had to go to the cross too early, so he was timing things, but the people, their reaction, 
they spoke more and more of him. The more he commanded them, shh, don't speak of me. Don't link me to this thing that's happened in the wilderness. And I tell you, beloved, and I speak as a fool, if ever there was a form of godly disobedience, I would say this is the time. They spoke and they couldn't contain themselves. And now, of course, we can't and we ought not to contain ourselves. But to go tell it on the mountains that Jesus Christ has fed 4,000 and Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But they showed by this that they were not in this for themselves as those who were fed, but they were, they were in this and they were liking this more and more because of the Messiah, the Savior, this Savior, this unique one. Maybe they didn't know him as the Messiah yet. He fed them. He made a difference in their life, and there was something about him which was making a difference in the souls of people elect among this multitude, to be sure. Well, beloved, this is all a picture of the spiritual blessings. Let's not stop at the food, at the fish, at the bread. Let's remember that Jesus blesses with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in him. And so that, yes, bread and food is a great gift from heaven. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, who is good, and who gives good and perfect gifts. But every saving gift is earned on the cross, beloved. And that's not mere rain and sunshine. That's a great gift. And sometimes it's by a subtraction in our life that God gives the gift of faith. And we bless him for that by the subtraction in our life. Sometimes we're going in direction, maybe it's with regard to work or relationship, and God says, no, don't go that way. I don't want you to go that way. You'll be compromised if you go that way. And so he opens another door, he closes that one, but it was hard, wasn't it, when he closed it? Or when he closes it, when he is closing it, for some of you maybe? But then he gives the faith and the courage to turn away and behold, there's another door. And so God's ways aren't our ways and and Messiah's way is the way of a fullness of soul, not only of earthly satisfaction. Our sad and sorry flesh will go after the world and seeks bread that doesn't satisfy. And Jesus whom we know only as someone whom we thought would just give us safety. When the Bible says that we don't follow Jesus to be safe, we follow Jesus to be saved. Big difference. Salvation is pictured here and all that Jesus can give. Again, as he explains in John 6, the whole point of the bread is to lift people up to the greater thing. If you just glance at verse chapter 16, Jesus is going to bring that out when at another occasion the disciples, they come to the other side of the Sea of Galilee 
And they'd forgotten to take bread. In the verse 6, Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It's because we've taken no bread. Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Oh, you a little faith, why do you reason among yourselves? Because you brought no bread. And then he refers to the miracles. You see, after all this, the disciples are still stuck on these things. Messiah is in the midst of them. He's the bread. And he's everything else they need. But they're thinking about logistics and bellies and being those who can do their work when they are fed well. And he says, aren't you getting it? Jesus does. It's all about me, the bread of life. It's all about something higher than this life that you would promote in yourselves and that the scribes and the Pharisees would promote with an earthly king like David and Solomon, something that rivals Caesar's kingdom. My kingdom's not of this world. And I'd go to the cross to prove it. Jesus has compassion. That's what moves him to this. Here, you have Jesus standing out as the compassionate God, our Savior. Now, met with this concept of Jesus, this attribute of Jesus, time and time again in Matthew. Jesus has pity on the needy. He has pity on you, and you, and you, and you, and on me. To send us relief. And that's what compassion is. And it's, according to that Greek word, something that goes back into the Hebrew, it's such a compassion that it's like the guts of Jesus. And that's really a reference, the the intestines of one who has compassion and hear Jesus are all in knots because he sees someone in need and he's not going to be relieved of these knots and this angst, as it were, until he can do something to relieve the problem, the misery. This is the idea of Jesus having compassion. And it's always striking to us, be, because Jesus is God and he doesn't have compassion like a man. And as God himself, in fact, doesn't have any intestines. Something, however, of Jesus reminds us that God doesn't have these intestines or a beating heart. Yet he's the God who's not cold. He's not some unmoved mover, as the philosophers said their first principle is. He's God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And somehow in Jesus Christ, he reveals that he's moved. Now I say this as a and that this is showing this kind of compassion as he is in the flesh. Because at the same time, we have to say, yes, God is never moved like a man. That is, 
his movement and his being swayed by what he sees is not a mere reaction that takes him by surprise and that causes him grief in the sense that he's frustrated and he wish, wishes that it had been somehow different. And oh, if only his plan had been different and he hadn't let the devil have this kind of liberty to choose against God. Oh, as if God were wringing his hands throughout history at every sin of man and every, every single miserable situation. God may never be seen as that kind of God. That's why the Westminster Confession reminds us that he's a God who doesn't have passions. We learn about this. That is human passions. He's divine passions and a divine heart. But it's divine. And somehow Jesus shows the perfect divinity in humanity by being moved and yet not, moved and yet not thwarted, reaching out without becoming less than he is, the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily. Now you got the mystery of the ages, God manifest in the flesh and real human. Touched with the feeling of our infirmities, Hebrews 4.15. Tempted in all things like as we are. Needing, though he's the God of the universe and owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And moved by the suffering of these people. And even though it seems like a little thing, so they're a little hungry. In this compassion, Jesus, in fact, is showing that he's Jehovah, God incarnate. If you read the prophecies of Jeremiah, Micah, he's the God of compassion on Zion to return them from captivity. The God, according to Micah, who forgives sins, and who's full of compassion to forgive sins. This is the compassion that Jesus is showing here. At this time, it's to alleviate the effect of sin, the hurt of sin, this time in the feeding of the, of the 4,000. There won't be any hunger or hunger pangs in heaven. The effect of sin is hunger and hunger pangs and the need for this sustenance and the threat of death if you're not sustained. Jesus would show this kind of compassion meeting this need. But so this is this divine Savior showing this. And it should have hit the people as remarkable if they knew anything of current view outside of Jewry, but the current view of the Greeks. The Greeks were those who thought compassion was for the weak need. It was an ignoble passion and emotion. That's what Seneca said. Showing compassion is for the weak. You ought to show justice. And, and that's strength 
You ought not just to have compassion on people. They, they don't deserve it because compassion means you're showing pity on people who don't deserve it. They haven't earned your pity. So that was the prevailing view. How different that is from and really the opposite of today. Today people think that showing compassion is, is, having, uh, is having justice at the same time. And the bleeding heart liberals, they'll show compassion by throwing money at things and regardless of what's right. But at the same time, though, they're really saying it is right to show compassion and to give and to pay off the student loans even though people have taken themselves made themselves responsible for paying them off and they, they should pay them off. But they'll say it's right because, well, everything else is unjust and people have rights after all. And everybody has rights to equal opportunity but also equal outcome. Let's spread the wealth. Jesus has compassion divine here, which is perfect, and which is and will lead him to the cross. This is something of which Jesus is pointing here. Jesus is having compassion on this multitude of this part of the world called the Gentiles to show the the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his promise. Remember before a woman had come to him and who was a Gentile, Syrophoenician woman, and said, have mercy on my daughter. Have mercy on me for my daughter's sake. Heal my daughter. And Jesus said that he comes not to, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she said, yes, but doesn't even the dogs, don't even the dogs eat from their master's table? And Jesus wondered wide-eyed at such faith among the Gentiles. Well, at this time, beloved, there is more than crumbs. Far much more than crumbs because Jesus, in his righteousness, is fulfilling the word of God to be the Savior of Jew and of Gentile. And when he goes to the cross, that's where we'll see it all. righteousness and justice and they meet and embrace like two lovers two twin sister virtues of God himself God will not compromise his righteousness for mercy's sake he will not be a God who's unjust in the name of mercy or a God who's merciful or who leaves off mercy in the name of justice here it is However much we can explain it or not explain it, Jesus has compassion here. And he has compassion on this multitude. It will be the kind of compassion that he shows on the cross. You know that, Jesus? That, Jesus. It's all about his feeding and saving the undeserving. And this is the Jesus now who calls us to himself and would take us somehow into the miracle. Let me explain. This is my concluding applicatory point. And I would say that it fits in with this morning's sermon and service. We partake in of Christ this morning. We know Jesus as the true Messiah the one who's had compassion on us. 
We rise up from the table. We rise up from the word of God, the gospel word, from the ministry of Christ and his church. And we want to react well. Here's what the disciples did, what they needed to know, what we must do and need to know. Jesus called his disciples to himself at this time, verse 32, and reminded them or told them he had compassion on the multitude. He's going to feed them. Then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? And so they're not believing. And this is striking because one chapter earlier, they had been witnesses of the feeding of the 5,000 here. They're met with 4,000 and ought to think that Jesus can help this crowd out too. But maybe they were thinking, like Jonah, why go to Nineveh? Why go to those people on the other side of the Jordan? Not our brothers. Why? The disciples were being here, Jewish Jonas, perhaps, and thinking that certainly, certainly you're not going to try to feed them as Gentiles. But that's not the excuse they give. They, they give the excuse that it's possible to have enough bread in the wilderness. And Jesus involves them. First, he calls his disciples to himself, and he gives them this private word. He tells them of his compassion and then of his intention by implication. And they should know better then to listen to Jesus and not to get in the way of Jesus' compassion, if anyone could, nor to try to thwart his intention, if anyone could. And Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? And here, in distinction from the feeding of the 5,000, they do have some loaves themselves. The feeding of the 5,000 was met initially by a boy who had some food and some bread and fishes. But here, they have a store, the disciples do, of seven loaves and a few small fish. And then Jesus commands the multitude to sit down and he takes the seven loaves and the fish and he gives thanks to God and he breaks them up. And in the distribution to the disciples, there's this miraculous multiplication of both bread and fish. Don't know how this occurred, of course, is a miracle. And by the way, nobody can really see miracles. That is the inner working of the work of God, the mind of God, the compassion of God, the power of God. It's I have not seen these things just as I could not have seen creation itself. You can't see a miracle, really, as little as you can see God himself. He's so mysterious, and even though it's right in front of you, you say, how can it be? How can it be? But it is a miracle. The disciples needed to be brought to Jesus to hear this and to be a part of the miracle itself, the distributors of it. Maybe they learned something of the generosity of, of God himself and the compassion of God himself in their giving of their own store and themselves in this situation where maybe they wouldn't have enough when it's all over. 
Be that as it may, they're learning something here about the magnanimity, the generosity, the kindness of God the Savior, no matter who it is. And maybe they're learning something even in the number. There's seven loaves, covenant number. And then there's seven large baskets filled up to the brim, apparently left over. Seven, seven, number of God with us, covenant number to the Jews, old covenant New covenant, perhaps? Something happening here. Speaking of something that would happen when the Spirit is poured out, the disciples learn something here of their Savior, that he's able to provide a table in the wilderness. And beloved, this is exactly what we need to learn here. We need to learn of Jesus, his plans being carried out, his compassion. He will not be denied, his pity. So that we're on his behalf, knowing the compassion ourselves. Do you know that? The compassion of Jesus on you today, and it will be tomorrow. You have no right to existence, nor do I. We have no right to anything except God give it. And God make us righteous. You have no right to grace for sure. Otherwise, grace is not free. But since we're recipients of grace and the grace of grace bread and grace sunshine and grace rain and grace deprivation so that faith kicks in and is stronger all the more because of the want, because we have that, we know something of it. And God wants us to be a part of the miracle now of the discipleship of the nations. This is for us, disciples. There were 12 then. There's us now, just us. And are we any better? Are we any better? That is... They obviously were lacking understanding of the fullness of the character of Jesus and of the cross. And they didn't really get it until after he rose from the dead. And then they got it. Then the lights went on. And then Peter could preach that miracle of Pentecost sermon. The fulfillment of Joel, this. The exaltation of Jesus, this. The pouring out of his spirit, this. But though we have that fullness of doctrine how often we are led to things visible and to live by things visible. And there's a temptation today to do that when things seem to be going against the church and we want things to go better for the church. Things are going bad in the nations. Say, oh, what's happening? Isn't God having compassion on us? Well, yes, he is. Do you know that? This last Tuesday, he's been having compassion on us so that we can have our spiritual compass reoriented to heaven and not to the White House. Beloved, may everything point to heaven for us. No matter who's in the White House, or the bleak house, or your house.
everything to heaven. And the only way to heaven is the compassion of God in the cross of Calvary and Jesus' suffering and our suffering for his sake. We know something of the compassion of Jesus when we ourselves, we fulfill the great commission and it's not about politics, it's about discipleship, teaching the nations everything that God has commanded in Jesus and baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember that. Remember that. So it's not about our winning or losing at the polls and at the voting booths. It's about God who wins. And God's compassion that has long, long arms to take in the unlovable and to feed people in the presence of enemies even, to feed them and to lead them all the way home. So people of God, maybe the church today doesn't think much of this feeding of the 4,000. After all, it's down a 1,000. We tend to think by numbers. Jesus, get with it. If you really were understanding what attracts people, you'd, you'd grow things and you'd grow the church and this should have been a feeding of 6,000 at least. Beloved, we're taught here not to count except the way God counts. And though these aren't people of pedigree, religious or otherwise, grace counts. That's the message. Grace, sovereign grace. So next time you think of your mission as something that compels you to go to the neighbor, remember that the motivation of compassion is greater than the motivation of compulsion. We're not forced to do missions, are we? We're not forced to be outstanding in the field of this world preaching Jesus, are we? You've received the miracle of salvation. It's all about God pitying you and me. Now go and tell the world and be glad. You've been fed today. Food for the week? You do. Amen. We pray, Father, that you would bless us and keep us right now. Give us to focus on the word and to talk about it. To remember your compassion, your pity, your provision your Son, Jesus, our Savior and Lord. And give us, Lord, to be on the mission to learn something from this, not to be ignorant disciples, nor unbelieving, but believing and full of the knowledge of God, which is eternal life. Inspire us, Lord, encourage us in Jesus being moved in his very heart, in his bowels, yearning for 
his people yearning to show compassion. May we have that same kind of compassion. Lead us to people in, the, in our life this week. And may we show that we've been with Jesus and that he is the Savior of sinners. Hear our prayers and bless us for his sake. Amen.